Hi, this is David Bash, the founder and CEO of the International Pop Overthrow Music Festival, and you're listening to Power Pop Overdose. How's it going, David? Um, it's going just fine, thanks. Good, I'm glad to hear that. Do you miss IPO? Very much so. Yeah, I bet you do. I'm really sad about uh, IPO Chicago this year. Yeah, yeah, you and me both. 
in my case, not just Chicago, but you know, all the other cities that I've had to cancel and invariably I'll, I'll probably have to cancel some of the other ones. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully they open the world up a little bit uh, sooner than later. Yeah, I agree. But obviously with, um, with restrictions in place. then radio was much more regional than it is now and so you you, you'd go to different radio stations you you would hear different songs well i mean there were some that you would hear on on every station 
but others others you you'd only hear in particular they were indigenous to different areas and um it was really fascinating to me that whole thing so so there was that element of it as well um but and and was primarily the radio for the first few few years of the 70s and then then i started uh buying records and i mean that <laughs> that became an obsession pretty quickly yeah and, and back then there weren't labels put on them there were i mean all right granted some some records did were referred to as soul and country and what have you but that that took that really uh, took second place to just those songs being being on the radio together and that was what was great you things weren't pigeonholed and they were just great songs that was it First, I bought cassettes because I didn't have a turntable. This okay. would have been 
This would have been, uh, the, well, the first cassettes I got were uh, April of 1974. I got the uh, the Red and Blue album, The Beatles. Um, now, I remember I was into watches, which I still am. And I had, yeah, I had a certain amount of money and it was, it came down to a choice between those two, those two cassettes or a stopwatch. And it wasn't an easy choice at that time, but I finally decided to get the cassettes. And those were, those were the only ones that I had gotten for, for almost a year. Um, and then, you know, in, in early 75, I remember my family went down to Florida and I stayed behind. And they get almost like a, you know, almost like a variation on the Beach Boys story. They left me some money for food and I used some of it to buy, a, to buy more cassettes. I remember uh, Elton John's greatest hits and Neil Diamond's greatest hits and the Guess Who's greatest hits. Uh, I, I think those were the next ones I got.
eventually though, I really wanted vinyl and I asked my, I asked my dad to, uh, to get me a turntable, which he did. Um, uh, but before that, my mom said, I mean, are you sure you want a turntable? Are you really going to buy records? Are you really going to use it? I said, don't worry, mom, I will. And, <laughs> you know, before you know it, within a year, I had almost a thousand L- LPs. Uh, so just about every penny you made uh, working, if whatever you did, you're buying LPs, huh? That's right. Uh, that's and, amazing. Uh, so <laughs> she quickly knew that I was true to my word. <laughs> started college at Syracuse University and you know in the meantime I, I my uh, my musical taste had broadened and I was I was listening to a lot of FM radio which which informed a lot of my record buying uh, at that point and then but it was mostly mainstream stations but when I started college at Syracuse University I found their their college radio station which played all you know all kinds of stuff you know, no playlist of of any kind, 
And I discovered so much underground stuff at that point. Prior to that, I was buying mostly mainstream, uh, which was not a problem back then because mainstream dovetailed nicely with, with my taste. But um, then, then this whole new world opened of all these obscure uh, songs and albums. And, I, and at the same time, I found a local record shop in Syracuse that had all kinds of you know, obscure titles. And uh, it was great. I was finding all this amazing stuff. Um, then I transferred over to NYU in uh, the beginning of 1978. And I, you know, I found so many New York record stores, which uh, and I, 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 was, I was absolutely astounded. I couldn't believe you know, the, the things that they had. Um, I, I, be, I became very adventurous. I took a lot of chances on, on, you know, you know, on records that just looked like they would be pop, or I don't even know if I used that word then, but they looked like they would be something I'd like, and uh, you know, more often than not, they were.
I mean, searching for stuff you know about or know of and, and finding it, that that in itself is a thrill. But to actually buy something that you you weren't aware of, that just you just had an instinct about, and then putting it on and finding out that it's even maybe even better than you thought it would be. And um, yeah, that that's a special that's a special experience in and of itself. Um, and I had plenty of those, and uh, that was great. That was one of the best aspects of, of becoming a record collector. Just finding so much, finding stuff that you really had no idea existed, and just finding it, you know, just just on instinct. No, there's a lot of stuff. You know, as many records as I have and have had in my life. There are things I don't know about. Um, there are certainly holy grail items that I do know about, but either haven't been able to find or are just too expensive. But I'm sure there are things that I've never heard. I mean, there are things that I've known of for many years that, and, and had, hadn't been compelled to buy them. And uh, I'm, sh I'm sure once, you know, if I ever do, I'll find out that, you know, I should have bought them years ago because they're really good. And then there are other things I'm just not aware of at all. It's a never-ending search.
I graduated NYU with a degree in journalism. Okay. And, but I was, uh, I had worked for a magazine for a while, but then I, I just found myself kind of aimless, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And, um, yeah, then my family moved out to California and I came with them and decided to go back to school to get a psychology degree. So I went to University of California, Irvine or, or UCI and uh, got that degree in about a year and a quarter. I decided that I wanted to become a full-time uh, college professor because I had taught some classes as a grad student and really loved it. I found that I loved it a lot more than the research I was doing as a grad student. And ultimately, I left with my master's. Um, I was in a PhD program, but never completed it. Um, I left to teach, and I taught at various community colleges for seven years. But uh, I did that. But while I was doing that, I discovered Yellow Pills magazine.
that was a real eye opener because I didn't realize that there were there were people out there that loved that loved the genre that was being called power pop. I, I didn't know that there were that many people out there, and that magazine definitely definitely made me aware of that fact, and uh, and also it was gratifying because. I mean, I didn't mind being an oddball, but you know, at least I wanted to be an oddball with a, with a, <laughs> a few Padres. So that was good. And, and then uh, a few other magazines uh, sprung up, like like uh, Oddities and Pop Sided and um, Amplifier. And I started writing. I started writing music reviews at that point. So. In the, you know, in the mid-90s, I was writing for, for Yellow Pills, for Amplifier, for Oddities, um, and then for Pop Sided. And um, I was getting to know a whole, a whole lot of bands from all over the world. I would read reviews of, of their music, contact these bands, um, ask them to send me copies of their stuff, which they did. And then I would review them for different magazines. And I got to know a lot of bands that way.
1996, there was a music festival in L.A. that, that, that came about called Poptopia, uh, started by a gentleman named Tony Perkins. He had already been doing a bi-weekly series of, of events called Bubblegum Crisis, and they were very cool. They, there would usually be four or five uh, local Los Angeles bills, uh, uh, bands on each bill, and um, yeah, a lot of... I was my world was opened up to a, a lot of great music. At the time, I was living with my brother in uh, in a town called West Hills in the San Fernando Valley, which is actually very close to where I am now. But um, and um, it afforded me the opportunity to just keep going to these shows and finding out more and more. And then you know, and then Poptopia happened, and it was just. It was beyond anything I could have expected. Uh, a, a huge festival with all these pop bands. And it was amazing. I mean, not just for the music, but for the camaraderie that was, had been built up between people who had come out to, uh, to see this thing. And it wasn't just locals. It was people from all around the world coming out. And I just remember thinking, I, I need to get involved in this somehow. So I remember asking Tony if I could help him. Uh, you know, I told him, "Look, I've been reviewing, I've been reviewing albums for for several years now, and I've gotten to know bands from all over the world. Um, would it be okay if I sent some to some your way, some who would be willing to come out to LA to play this festival?" And he said, "Sure," and that's what I did.
to everybody's chagrin, there was only so much room for uh, for these bands to play, and he couldn't accept all, all of their requests. And they would commiserate with me about not being able to get in. And that was more or less the impetus for me to start IPO. Um, I, I, you know, it was something that I, you know, I, I just I'd wanted to do, but didn't really have any encouragement yet. I hadn't told too many people. At, at, you know, at that point, it was just a seedling. And but one day in December of 1997, I, I uh, had lunch with a music attorney friend named Ben McLean, and uh, I told them about my idea. And I said, I, you know, I uh, I think I can do it. Um, I had seen what Tony had done, and I, I just felt like maybe I could do the same thing, but with a more worldwide emphasis rather than mostly LA emphasis. And uh, Ben said, yeah, you should. And that was the encouragement I needed.
August 21 through 30 in 98 here in L.A. Um, we had mostly L.A. bands, naturally, but I was I was so pleasantly surprised at how many bands from all over the world whom I invited accepted my invitation. There, there weren't that many options to, for home entertainment at the time. Um, so people tended to uh, find their entertainment elsewhere. And it, it was great. Plus, our audience was a lot younger at the time. So right. people had people had a lot more energy to go out. They didn't have as many responsibilities. You know, most fa- most fans didn't have children yet. Um, and uh, so they were footloose and fancy free. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they came to a lot of our shows. And we had people from all over the world fly in. And it was it was wonderful. I had been discouraged by a lot of people, who, people, people who said that I wasn't going to get an audience because people wouldn't come out to see bands they'd never heard of. People wouldn't come out to see bands that weren't local. And uh, I was a little discouraged, but also undaunted. I said, I'm doing this anyway. It's something that needs to be done. And I, 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 feel, I, you know, I feel like I can do it well. I, I, I knew an array of bands who were very talented. And um, I thought if I could put them under one roof, that we would, you know, we would create something enduring and something, you know, that that people would really dig. And and uh, so I was, you know, I was optimistic, but it still exceeded my expectations on so many levels. Six o'clock tonight, and uh, we have a workforce.
IPOs were done exclusively in LA, and we had a panel discussion. This was uh, this was July of 2001, and a bunch of the bands who were who had been flying out to LA came to this. And I remember it was one of the guys from the band Rocket Transfer Warehouse. I want to say Greg Moragos or either Greg or Gary got up and said, "David, it's time for you to take IPO on the road." And I had been thinking about doing that, but I had a lot of trepidation. Um, for one thing, I would have had to, I would have had to quit my job. I, I mean, I was working out of home, but I, which afforded me to do IPOLA at the same time. But to take things on the road, you know, I would have had to make it a full time gig. And um, you know, it was uh, it was something I'd, I I obviously never done and didn't know how well it would. It would do so you know it was um there was a, a certain amount of fear but then that i remember that evening michael mazzarella of the rooks uh, it was at our ipo show that night he, he took me aside and said david take it to new york i know a lot of uh people who book clubs there i'll get you into all the all the best venues don't worry about it so that made me feel better and i took him up on it and we did our first IPO on the road in New York in uh, de December of, two of 2001. <laughs>
At that point, I became extremely confident that that this could become a full time gig for, you know, for for years to come. But the big thing happened. The biggest thing happened the following year. Uh, early two thousand three, I get an email from a, a lady named uh, Jean Catherall. She was from Liverpool, and she had heard about IPO. And, um, I don't recall th- through whom, but. She had, she had asked me, have you ever thought about doing IPO in Europe? I said, well, I mean, it's been in the back of my mind, but I, you know, I didn't think I could pull it off and blah, blah, blah. And she said, how would you like to do it at the Cavern Club? And you could have knocked me over with a feather. Mm-hmm. I, I, that was beyond my wildest dreams. And I said, well, I just started stammering. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> And she said, leave it with me. Um, I'll be back with you in a couple of days. She came back. She said, I spoke with the people at the cavern and they want to do it. And I mean, the rest is history.
I feel Liverpool embodies every uh, ethos that the festival has always had. Uh, we have it, it, it's uh, you know it's a worldwide pop scene under one roof. The the, the I mean because we have bands from all over the world coming to to IPO Liverpool. I mean it's the Cavern Club after all. Mm-hmm. So people want to play. They right. want to play in the venue that where the Beatles made their name. It's been just tremendous. The camaraderie between the bands and the fans, between the fans themselves, the Cavern. The quality of the music—it's just un- unreal. Uh, I, you know, I don't—I don't think we'll ever see—I don't think we'll ever see anything else like it, honestly. And uh, I'm very, very proud of, of the fact that we've done that. And we even have a plaque celebrating our 15th year that's hanging up on the cavern wall.
I had spoken, I had spoken to Rena and asked, you know, asked her theoretically, if I were to ask you to marry me, would you accept? And she said she would. That was a few months earlier. Um, so one day we're at the cavern. We're doing, you know, we're doing an IPO show, and I noticed a lot of a lot of our friends in the crowd, and a lot of bands who were who were playing that night, who we were also pretty friendly with. And I thought to myself, this is the, you know, this is where I'm, when I'm going to ask her to marry me. So there's a band playing, and I said to her, when they're done, I'm going to go up and give it up for them, and and invite you to come up on stage. Uh, she didn't suspect a thing because that was something that I would do ritualistically anyway once during the festival, just to thank her for all her help. So she did that, and I started thanking her for all her help, and then I segued into getting down on one knee and asking her to marry me, and she was in shock. And so was the crowd. It, it was such a great moment. I'll never forget. Of course, she said yes.
So how how are you feeling? Um, I know you had some a health scare earlier, and uh, are you feeling a little better? Well, thank you for asking. Um, in January of 2015, I had a heart attack, which, according to my cardiologist, would have killed me two hours later if I hadn't gotten to the hospital. Mm. Um, and since then, I've had I had a second heart, a much milder heart attack at the end of 2018. That's still, you know, that's still an issue. I, you know, I have um, I have made have major anxiety issues as well, which tend to manifest as chest pains, and so sometimes it's it's difficult telling you know distinguishing between anxiety pain and and heart pain. Uh, I think I've gotten to the point where I can tell, but sometimes it's fairly confusing. I have had I have had chest pains recently. I'm pretty sure I can ascribe them to anxiety, but uh, and let's hope that's what it is. And you know, under the current circumstances, it would make perfect sense that uh, anxiety would be um, would be the culprit here.
this would be our 23rd year if LA, you know, if, if that's able to happen this year, uh, you know, that's still, you know, still an open question. But you know, if it doesn't, then it'll it'll happen next year. You know, it's everything's very uncertain right now. We don't, yeah, sure. you know, you you have you have governors talking about ex, extending the. Uh, you know the lockdown into next year. You know, I mean, all kinds of stuff. No live music till uh, September two thousand twenty-one. Um, I mean, we don't know that that'll actually happen, but it's it's certainly been talked about, uh, theorized. So we'll see. We'll just wait this out and you know do whatever whatever um, the law dictates.
the future hopefully would be uh, expanding our international showcase base. We've been doing shows in um, Vancouver and and Hamilton, Ontario, um, and, uh, and and Liverpool and Stockholm. But you know, I would love to get something going in, let's say, Madrid or Tokyo, Sydney, Melbourne, Amsterdam. There are a lot of pla- there are a lot of places with great pop scenes that um, are untapped right now, and uh, hopefully one day, you know, we'll, I'll be able to um, get those going. You know, one of the great things about Madrid is, is shows go really late. Their culture is set up to where. Um, they don't go to bed early and, you know, bands can be playing till three, four a.m. I love that. Yeah, that in and of itself would be a great reason to go. But they do have an amazing number of great bands in Spain. And, you know, again, Europe is, you know, the geographical layout of Europe is such that, you know, most of the other countries are fairly close. And it's not that difficult for, you know, people of, uh of most of the European nations to, to uh, fly out to Spain. So there would be no shortage of great bands, that's for sure. Slowly going into
will be back. This is yeah. this is not forever. Far from it. Yeah. So you yeah. know, we'll we'll be back and hopefully better than ever. Yeah, and I appreciate all your hard work too, and uh, I, I'm glad that you're still going strong. Thank you, Kurt. Really appreciate that, and I appreciate I appreciate you. You know, you you doing pop overdose. It means a lot. All right, thanks, David. Thank you, Kurt. Have a good one, sir. You too. All right, bye. Bye-bye.